1: Welcome to Live Life Better from Virgin Books in association with Penguin Living. I'm Dominic Frisby and this week we are talking creativity, specifically about how we can unleash the creative genius that lies within us all. And with me in the studio are all sorts of interesting people. We have graphic artist and author Anthony Burrell. Anthony has developed a distinctive style of design and communication using Bold lettering to make big statements, and his work is sought after by collectors and also by eminent clients such as Google and the London Underground. Anthony's new book is called Make It Now. Anthony, hello. Hello. How are you doing? Not bad, thanks. Good, excellent, nice and succinct and to the point, which is what we like. And sitting on my right is Michael Parker, a man of many achievements. He spent 20 years as, as he describes it, a suit at ad agency Saatchi & Saatchi. He's also described as one of the UK's most experienced pitchers. And by that, I don't mean throwing a baseball. I mean pitching ideas and businesses. He's taken part in over a thousand pitches. And he has also competed as an Olympic hurdler in the 110 metres not at, not once, but twice in 1964 and 1968. And Michael's books draw on his experiences and the aim behind them is to help people learn how to speak and present themselves with power and persuasion. And I, I don't know about you, but that's something I know that I could do with. Uh, his book from a couple of years ago was It's Not What You Say, It's The Way You Say It. And he's just written a book called Unaccustomed As I Am, The Wedding Speech Made Easy. Michael, welcome. Dominic, thank you for that slight introduction. It was, it was lengthy, but there was so much meat to it. I thought, no, I've got to keep that. That's quality. So anyway, thank you. not at all, not at all. And with me a little later on the show, we'll meet the man behind Ella's Kitchen, entrepreneur Paul Lindley, and he'll be discussing how we can channel our inner toddler to unlock our creative potential. So, Anthony, let's start with you. You've just written a book, but you're a graphic designer, you're a graphic artist. How have you made the journey to become where you are? Um, I graduated from the Royal College of Art
2: in 1991. And since then, I've I've kind of just worked in a kind of very focused way, but encompassing lots of different projects, maybe like illustration, graphic design, lots of different avenues, really. And I think throughout all of that, I think words have, have been really important to my work. I started off as, as a kind of illustrator and I think I've developed more of an interest in words and then typography.
1: You use kind of bold lettering to make big statements, don't you?
2: Yeah, I think it's... Um, I've always been interested in ideas and, and communicating ideas and I've found throughout the kind of like development of my professional work that just using words and very very succinct amount of words, you know, kind of saying things... Very simply and very directly. Do
1: you write your own catchphrases, or do you do you have other people write them and then you kind of design them, or do um, both? No, I, I kind of write them all myself. Give um, us a couple that we might know. Uh, work hard and be nice to people.
2: <laughs> um, well, actually, that I overheard that one. I didn't write that one. Um, I like it. What is it? And kind of phrases that kind of play with words. Really, I think when you speak them out loud, they sound a little bit sure kind Of trite
1: and a bit, a bit they're not, kind of, they're yeah. not, they're, they're written to be read, they're not read yeah, to, yeah, exactly. to be spoken. Yeah, yeah, I
2: think that they kind of exist as visual pieces as well. So, the typography and the choice of words and the length of words as well is, is really important in, in each individual
1: piece. So, your new book is called Make It Now, it's got some artwork in it as mm. well. As, and, I mean, did you apply your own advice when it came to writing it, or did you was it a long time coming? Um, I think it was. The the initial idea came through my editor,
2: Ellen Jones, and we kind of talked a lot about ideas for the book and and kind of references and things. And I think it was, um, I wrote the book originally, and then I realized I had to design it as well. So it was a whole other stage of development. Mm -hmm. So I think through writing the book, it's given me a real insight into my work in practice as a designer and artist and i feel like kind of reinvigorated by the process really
1: i'm holding it in my hand now and it's bigger than a normal book that you would read on the tube or something but it's not quite kind of coffee table book big i suppose it's that kind of reflects you is this kind of yeah i think it's bedside table size Bed. there you go bedside table size beautiful i'm just looking through some of these fonts beautiful 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 You haven't inked that bit in properly. You've been using one of those 19th century bits of wood. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I missed a bit there. (laughs) Very good. Michael, so your background is you're a suit from an advertising agency. And so how have you
3: gone from being being a suit to being a a pitch guru? It's a good question because I'm a suit married to a creative. And in the eyes of the creative, the suit is a pretty second-class sort of citizen. And as a suit, I was okay, but I found that my competitive background, if you like, reflected in the Olympics, meant that I got bored with clients quite quickly. And once we'd won them, I was okay, but I wasn't the best client handler suit. And so I kept on finding my way into new business. So that's that's the competition, winning a new business? Winning, winning, competing, yeah. That's what really turns me on. And so I did an awful lot of that, as you said, 1,000 pitches. And so when I finished advertising, I was approached by a company I'd dealt with once before asking if I would be their pitch coach. I hadn't thought about it, but as soon as they asked, it made sense. And I don't... I help with training, but mainly it's working when they've got a major pitch coming up, I help them. So I'm, I'm getting competitive alongside them. In the world of pitches, what's more important,
1: what you're selling or the way that you sell it? It's a form it's against function. It's an
3: age-old question. There was a very, very perceptive article written ten years ago by a character around the advertising agency register, which helps clients choose agencies, and having sat through hundreds and hundreds of pitches with the client taking the decision, his article in effect said, Dear advertising agency, you might think it's your great solution, which leads to the client choosing you, but in fact it's not. It comes down to very simple things like, do they like you? Do you like each other? And how hungry were you? It wasn't the content. It was those three things. And pitching's like an early form of branding, really, isn't it?
1: Do you know what I mean? Cause, yes. Because often you'll see one product that's not branded as well as another product, and the better branded product sells better, even if the the other product is That's better. a good way of
3: putting it, because the the truth is hardly anybody can actually assess, is that a better solution than that solution? I remember at Saatchi's trying out amongst three different creative directors. I showed them the same campaign and asked them to vote on it. None of them agreed which was the best campaign. So creative directors can't choose in a vacuum why should the client be able to choose so if you think of branding as the emotional reassurance which goes around a product which it is same thing with a pitch if you put emotional reassurance around your pitch then you've got a much better chance of winning let me ask you a personal question i've
1: met you for the first time just now and i think anthony will back me up on this you're a kind of old school clean cut chiseled Englishman. You've got nice, smart hair with a kind of side parting. In, you know, you look like the sort of guy you could have a, an officer's uh, outfit on in World War II and you'd look every inch the kind of debonair RAF officer. How, how important is that to, your, to um, your charm and your success?
3: That's very kind of you to say those things. I think my wife would agree with any of it. She might agree with the chiseled because I'm slightly <laughs> lean. She wouldn't agree with the, like my, my, my dress, which she thinks is pretty awful. It does count, however, and there's a famous story about Charles Saatchi. I think it's true that when he started his advertising agency, he only employed account men, and they were men who were over six feet tall, because he believed that was really important in the authority they men, would bring. Men should be over six foot. That the account men should be, but then there were not many women account handlers. So, the truth is, in any presentation, it's not so much the classic looks, but how do you come across? It almost terrifies me. All three of us in this room started making impressions as soon as we saw each other. And those impressions are not going to change much because you've seen all the studies or men on but I've looked at them. Um, first. What impressions you decide last. in fifteen seconds at the beginning of an interview or a pitch is very difficult to shake. So if you decide badly, then the agency's really gotta work uphill. If you start thinking, gosh, these people are good, they stay up there. So the looks side, whether it's clothing, chiselled or whatever word you used about me, are hugely important.
1: Mm-hmm. I compare a lot of comedy clubs. I'm a comedian, is my kind of night job. And I'm convinced that the first 90 seconds of the night are the most important. And you can determine how the rest of the night goes by the, the way you, the
3: compare comes across in the first 90 seconds. I agree. Seconds. When, I'm, when I'm coaching companies now for a pitch, I only worry about the first three minutes or five minutes of the pitch. The re- there's going to be a half an hour pitch, but if they haven't, as it were, won it in those first three to five minutes, they're not going to win it. That's what I tell them, so mm. that's what we focus on. Anthony, Make It Now. It offers
1: tips on how we can get things done at work, and um, do you want to run us through some of those tips? I think, yeah, it's interesting what we were just
2: talking about now, but I think um, everything's about first reactions, so the start of any new project, it's like, I think you have gut instinct as the way that a direction uh, project should go. So I think it's kind of holding on to that initial thought of how you, you know, you think about things in the, in the first stages of project. If you feel uninspired, give yourself a break. I think that whole thing about, you know, feeling that you have to be sitting at a desk to kind of look as though you're working is a kind of mistake. So a lot of the time, you know, my kind of best ideas come from walking the dog or riding a
1: bike. Do and... you know there's a reason for that? I've heard theories. Well, I was, well I mean, Aristotle used to have this kind of peripatetic school, which was his school of philosophy, and he insisted that all his lectures were conducted while walking. Mm. And it's because apparently the part of the brain that inhibits creativity is the bit that deals with putting one foot in front of the other, and therefore it's dealing with that, and therefore you're more creative. Yeah. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's... I don't know. I, think I read you... it on Wikipedia.
2: Yeah, <laughs> it must be true. I think that the, there are a lot of theories, you know, about where our ideas come from. I think it's just thinking about things and thinking about how you're going to go about things. Yeah, definitely, sitting in front of a computer is not a good place to think of ideas. I think creativity comes from putting two or three things together in an unexpected way. So, by just being out in the world and experiencing sunsets, and you know, it's kind of it's just stuff like that. Really, obvious stuff like reducing stress at work and not taking on too much work or, you know, having too little work. I think it's balance between the two. And that's something I'm, I'm always conscious of. I know how much work I can get done in a week, so I kind of plan out what I'm going to do. If projects aren't going well, let people know. I think it's all to do with communication. After all, we're in the communication business. So I think you should, through every project, you should be able to talk to people who you're working with. Allowing your personal values to feed into your work. I think for me that's really important all the work I produce it comes from me and it's kind of got my name on it so I kind of feel if I'm working for a client that I'm not 100% sure about or if it's products that I wouldn't use myself then you know I have to step away from that I think I think having belief in things that you're working for I think that's when you can really unleash your creative mind because you you've 100% on board with stuff and if you working on something that you're not happy with then it's just a matter of stepping away and looking at things from different angles you know it's like all this is for me it's kind of first level entry level problem solving but you know it's all stuff that we should think about
1: So how can we get creative ideas in the first place? Well, Paul Lindley is founder of the UK's best-selling baby food, Ella's Kitchen, and he's worked around young children for years and he thinks we have a lot to learn from them. So I'm sitting in the offices of Penguin Random House and I must be looking at, one of the most beautiful views, not only in London, but of the whole world. We're on the north bank of the river, staring across the River Thames, and it's a beautiful sunny day. I can see the London Eye, the Houses of Parliament, uh, Tower Bridge one way, uh, Westminster Bridge the other way. It is stunning. And sitting opposite me is a man who is almost as good looking as the view, Paul Lindley. Paul, welcome to the programme. Pleasure to have you here. Now, this book Little Wins, The Power of Thinking Like a Toddler. Why did you write this
4: book? Hiya, Dom. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. Well, I've spent the last 20 years uh, working with or or having children. So in my personal life, I've got a 17-year-old and a 14-year-old. But for the last 20 years for work, I've worked at Nickelodeon and I've set up my own company, Ella's Kitchen, both totally immersed in really thinking like a child, coming from a child's perspective, So Ella's Kitchen launched 11 years ago, we've grown so quickly, we're the the UK's biggest baby food company, we're in 40 countries around the world, 100 million pound turnover, and uh, we've really disrupted the market with a lot of creativity. And when I'm either asked, what's the secret of why Ella's was successful, or what tips could you give a budding entrepreneur or someone who wants to start a business, whatever I say always comes back to things that toddlers do. And I've sort of worked out that actually, if you think like a toddler, you could set your life off on, on a little different path. And that, that's where the, the heart of where the book started from.
1: So give me an example of how we can think like a toddler.
4: Here's a quick real life example. A little girl's four years old. She just started school. Our first day at school, the teacher asks the class to draw somebody that they love. And she goes around as they're drawing away and stops at this little girl and says, uh, wow, what's that? And the little girl shows her up to her face and says, it's God. And the teacher says, but nobody knows what God looks like. And the little girl straight away says, well, they do now. And <laughs> that's, that's just a perfect example of sort of confidence and creativity that young children have. And I think things like that are eroded as we grow up. Some of it through sort of parenting and in our society. Some of it is physiological. But we need more moments like that to have happier lives and to have a better society. That's a great example. Kids think of that age divergently, and that's a sign of creativity. Because creativity is putting
1: two weird things together, isn't it? Yeah,
4: and because really they don't know the rules, they don't know convention, their brains are wired in a little bit of a different way because they're growing, and they can make connections that we mask as adults. So Sir Ken Robinson's written the most watched TED Talk about Do Schools Kill Creativity?, And in that, he cites uh, a fantastic statistic, and that is that of three- to five-year-olds, 98% of them can think in divergent ways or use divergent thinking day-to-day, and that's a sign of creativity. And then as we get old, that reduces. So by the time people are 25, 2% of us are using divergent thinking in our day-to-day lives. So my contention is 96% of us were once creative, used creativity the way we think, and no longer by the time we're 25 or, or older. And if we are going to solve our society's problems, if we are going to have happier lives, if we need to stop thinking about the same way to make solutions that haven't worked every other time we tried them, we're not going to find the solution. So we need to encourage creativity for innovation, for disruption, all of that sort of stuff. And we need to grow down and think a little bit more like we did when we were four rather than when we were 44.
1: Now, is this kind of declining creativity as you get older... Does that happen naturally or do our systems
4: Hmm.
1: make it or is it a bit of both? Well, it's a
4: bit of both. So the prefrontal cortex of our brain develops in our teenage years and into our 20s and that has inhibition and embarrassment and things like that. So that has some of the filters in how we behave and that does suppress creativity and all the confidence to express creativity. But a lot of it, in my view, is around parenting and how we want our kids to conform, to fit in, with short-term goals to pass exams and to get a job and to play it safe in a way. That's, you know, and I can see the evolutionary sort of need for some of that. But also evolutionary-wise, we need the outliers. We need people who are going to think differently and challenge convention. And that's where creativity should play a much bigger part in our society.
1: So how do we grow down...
4: Well, what I have in my book is my method. And that really involves around finding a seminal moment from your childhood and really immersing
0: Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to Bluehost.com/slash-wondersuite.
4: yourself in that moment, so not sort of picturing a moment. But really getting to a point that you can remember, where you can remember the smells and the sound of laughter or music or whatever it is, and you can really put yourself in that moment and look at, look at the world and touch and feel the world from that moment like a child would of that age. The example I use in my book isn't actually from my own childhood, it's from my son Paddy's. He was four and he'd just returned from school uh, really excited because his new friend Natalie had a boiled egg in her lunchbox and she opened it by cracking it on her forehead and he just thought this was brilliant. So um, I said, do you fancy doing that tomorrow? And he said, yes he did. So we went into the kitchen and I boiled an egg and started cooling it turned around and swapped the egg for an uncooked one and gave it to him and I said, show me how to do it mate and he cracked it on his forehead and the yellow dribbled down his face and then for two seconds there was silence and then he giggled in his voice and said daddy you tricked me and I fell about laughing and I was a toddler for that second and I didn't care what was happening later that evening or about the mortgage or my business challenges or whatever I was just a toddler for that second so my my thing is if we can all recreate a moment like that you can live in the moment and you can really look at life through those toddlers eyes that's what i think growing down is about
1: in the book you have a list of nine things we can learn from toddlers
4: so those nine things really are about um, confidence around creativity around diving right in around never giving up around honesty around getting noticed around showing your feelings around play and, and having fun and involving others There are skills that we once had that we can reignite. And I think that's what the heart of the book is around. It's around finding our best potential, not by learning new stuff, but by rediscovering old skills that we once had when we had that mindset of a toddler, every one of us. Okay, now you have some exercises Mm. in the book. The exercise I'd like to do with you, Dom, is called the 30 circles test. And it was devised by a guy called Bob McKim in the 60s um, from Stanford. And it's been used on all sorts of groups of people over the last 40 or 50 years. And it's really interesting how they analyse how different groups do this thing in different ways. So have got a page from the book here which has got 30 blank circles. The only instruction is make those 30 circles something that aren't circles.
1: OK, so off we go. There's 30 circles. So in the first one I'm boring some ears and a a nose and a kind of, except I don't know how to do a cat's whiskers. Um, The second circle, I'm doing some kind of whirly uh, air signs on either side because that has turned into a frisbee. Uh, The third and fourth circles have become eyes. So
4: Let's stop you there. So... Everyone looks at this in a very different way. Some people have one big idea, so they probably only need five seconds to do that. Other people join things together to make, I don't know, a traffic light sign or a bicycle, or you started to do that with a, with a huge face, which mm-hmm. was great. Um, and other people use the circles as frames and just draw within the frame. So the interesting thing is we all take the same simple instructions and do them very differently. Now, toddlers are the group that get furthest in this um, because they can divergently think from one thing to another to another to another we tend to get stuck in smiley faces or we've done one thing quickly and we've got the job done
1: I'd like to do it again ah. I'd like to do it again and after you know I'll read your book and then in a couple of weeks later come do the exercise again and see how I get on. You're listening to the Live Life Better podcast from Virgin Books in association with Penguin Living. And if you're enjoying the show and are inspired by our guests today, we'd love to hear from you. Tweet at Virgin Books using the hashtag Live Life Better. So I'm back in the studio now with public speaking guru Michael Parker and Anthony Burrell, the graphic artist who will help you put your creativity into action. And we've just heard there that toddlers are the key to unlocking our creative potential. You've got kids, Anthony. Can you see them being creative and can you see their creativity kind of being knocked out of them as they go older and go through school and everything? Oh, yeah, definitely. As soon as
2: both my son and daughter started at secondary school, I think that's when creative freedom that they enjoyed at junior school was very quickly crushed, I think. I think it to do with peer pressure and uh, I think just that kind of self-consciousness that you develop in, in when you become a teenager.
3: I agree that I think everyone has creativity when they're a young child. Um, and for many, it isn't nurtured in any way. And I think that's a great shame. I think all the sort of tests that the schools have to go through of proving this and proving that and making it very hard. Obviously, some schools manage to avoid that. So it's a great shame. I agree, basically, that creativity isn't nearly as well nurtured in childhood and school days as it could be. Michael you writing, you encourage people to embrace
1: the joy in public speaking. I mean, how, how important is do you think it is
3: to be a good speaker? I mean, we can't all be good speakers, or can we? I think I used that expression, as I know I did, in my second book, which was a wedding speech, because as I started talking to people, I realised that people really do not want... You know, they're frightened about the speech they yeah. have to make at a wedding. A wedding is a joyful occasion... And why should the people making the speech be the people who enjoy it least? Yeah, and everyone wants and you to do well. That's right, and it's it can be really terrifying, and they sort of put off writing the speech. And and so throughout the book, I was trying to say there are ways by doing things a bit earlier, how you can arrange your material, so that you start enjoying it. And what happens, because I'm naturally very shy, and I've become better at speaking since I started coaching, and one actor who was helping me, or an actress, said that you start caring for the audience. You will know this, being a comic. Instead of worrying about yourself, how am I coming across, what am I coming next, you start getting to a stage after rehearsal. Wait a minute, I'm having fun, and they're having fun. So that sense of enjoyment works for you and for the audience. So I hope the book is helping a lot of nervous speakers enjoy the wedding. Creative people do
1: struggle, I know they do, to sell themselves well, to present themselves well. How does that bridge cross between selling your? I'm not sure that's
3: creative people so much as some creative people. Okay. Because they know they've got a great idea and they've forgotten the other side of any pitch that... Who are you talking to? What are they expecting? Yeah, and you're and also they too lose, far they lose, away. You lose confidence in and your they get idea a bit, when you, as you're creating it. Yes, or they get a bit too overemphatic about it. Whereas, and quite often they become creative directors who have gone through that and understand that, and some of them are creative directors because they are brilliant at pitching the ideas of others, or account men are brilliant. And so, averagely, unless they've had experience, the creative, a lot of creative people won't be that good at pitching their own idea. They'll have the passion. But in, in The Passion, they've completely ignored their client or the person they're talking to, their audience, if you like. Mm-hmm. must be like you telling a, a joke which no one else is getting. Yeah, um, it <laughs> so happens occasionally. It, it is. So I've, I've seen some ago. creative directors <laughs> who, one of them who has inspired me a lot, a guy called Paul Arden who wrote the original great self-help book, It's Not How Good You Are, It's How Good You Want To Be. And he and I, I was a suit to the biggest pitch of the year. And I'd set up the whole proposition. We'd rehearsed it. Up stands Paul, about 20 terribly important people. And for about a minute he says nothing. Then he says, he starts to speak and he can't get the words out. After two minutes, he finally all rehearsed in himself. He lets the idea come out. The audience were getting closer and closer and closer, their anticipation. And he had sold the campaign almost before he put it on the table by making them wait for two minutes. It was a fantastic piece of selling. Now, that was a creative guy who certainly understood how to sell, but he had a lot of experience. So most creatives who are inexperienced think because it's a great idea, it must be bought by someone. It won't be. They've got to sell themselves first. I know hundreds, maybe not hundreds, tens
1: of comedians, they have better acts than the comedians who get on the telly, and they are consistently better in the clubs than the comedians who get on the telly and yet they don't get on the telly. Some of them end up quite bitter about it, with some justification. Mm. So I guess, mm. that's, I think the question is, how do we sell ourselves better? Is, is that too...
3: too no, too? I, I think probably they haven't rehearsed the selling opportunity, just because they're great on stage. Obviously, occasionally, they just pick up the audience, insist they want to be on television, but I think when they are in that situation, talking about how they're going to do their act, they're pitching themselves, as opposed to, doing Mm. their act, that's for some quite different. But you do read of comedians who only do come through after ten or fifteen years. Yeah. So there's also, of course, in that world a huge element of luck, isn't there? One person likes you, someone else hates you. You Seventeen publishers hated JK Rowley. Yeah.
1: I think was the story. (laughs) Yeah, I mean the Beatles and Clint Eastwood and Marilyn Monroe, they all you know Absolutely.
2: I think now, though, you can create your own channels, can't you? You can get on YouTube mm-hmm. and you don't need uh, TV producers you don't. to pick you. So in... But you've still got to market <laughs> your channel. Yeah, yeah but then, then it's like you, you're kind of making your own thing, you making your own world, mm-hmm. aren't you? And there's less having to fit in with other people's preconceptions. And by the means that we've got now, social media, you can reach a huge audience and sidestep all those sort of traditional channels.
1: Do you think there's a kind of parallel between the creative block that you're kind of urging us to overcome in your book and the, and a kind of fear of speaking, that kind of block?
2: Yeah, but it's to do with self-confidence. But I think that's where creativity comes from, is a maybe a lack of self-confidence and you kind of uh, making up for it in, in other ways. I know personally speaking, like throughout my 20s, I found it very difficult to make a phone call to anyone. I kind of didn't like going to see people show my work. and You know, I'd, I'd kind of be working what away. if they don't like it? I know. It was awful. And I was kind of working away and kind of doing stuff. And then slowly I began to meet people who encouraged me and gave me opportunities to, to kind of do stuff. And then gradually I kind of turned into a, more of a confident person. Michael, what if they don't like it?
3: What do you hmm. do? The advantage of working is I had years and years and years of new business. I got used to the idea that you were going to be rejected nine times out of ten every time you made a phone call. So once you've got that into your head, you stop worrying about it and just look for the chance that you get through. It is, in, in a pitch that goes badly, it's just unpleasant because usually it's not easily retrievable. Maybe after the event you can go back with some amazing idea and persuade them to look at you again but you kind of sense it draining away halfway through the pitch. <laughs> and then you just have to keep going till the end. It's just tough.
1: Sometimes it's focusing on some little detail that's the barrier between you making the right pitch to selling your work. You know, it's showing somebody incomplete work. Is that a problem, Anthony? Yeah, I, I think it's things like um, making excuses
2: for yourself to not get out there and show people your stuff I remember I I worked on my portfolio for probably about three or four years after I left college and I was always saying oh you know it's not quite ready yet you know when it's finished I'll go and see loads of people with it and and you kind of it never got finished you know it's still not finished and it's I think it's a matter of just kind of getting out there and showing people you work through whatever means that is you know whether it's it's through your Instagram or actually physically meeting people face-to-face, which is, I think, in the creative industries, it's becoming more more rare now. But, yeah, it's just a matter of, of kind of getting on with things, really.
3: It's interesting. In the pitch, um, there's always a deadline. On a given date at 3 o'clock, you're pitching. 2 o'clock, another agency or somebody else. And, let's see, you've had 20 days working on it. 99 times out of 100, the same mistake creeps in that the pitching company or person will spend all their time in their comfort zone of thinking how can they improve the argument, how can they improve the case histories, how can they tweak the advertising, how can they add another advertisement, and on and on. And sometimes they'll do that right up until midnight, and they're pitching at nine o'clock the next day. And forgetting, that's all the content end, that at the end of the day, they're going to be judged instinctively and emotionally by two or three people sitting across a room. And the fact that you've put in 45 solutions when there's only one or the fact that you've got 10 bits more argument, you go on and on working on the content completely at the expense of how you're going to get the emotion into the pitch. Because you left yourself no time to make a good emotional pitch if you haven't decided what you're going to pitch until midnight.
1: So the emotion is more important than the detail? Oh, of course. I've got a family friend. Let's see what you both make of this story. And he has two sons. And my family friend is obsessed with boxing uh, ever since a young age. And he would have been a very successful karate man, actually, a national champion in karate. But he got injured in his mid-20s. And so he kind of brought his two sons up to be boxers. And he was kind of not going to let them make the same mistakes or fall into the same traps that he fell into. And his eldest son became heavyweight world champion. His second son was more talented, but he never fought one fight as a pro. And I talked to the guy who became the heavyweight world champion, and I said, you know, come on, we've got to push the number two guy. We, he's He's still got a chance of making the Olympics, yada, yada. And the elder brother just said, he won't do it because he'd rather be the guy who could have made it than the guy who took the risk and succeeded or failed. Is that a, do you know what I mean? Is that a kind I of do. psychology you've encountered?
3: I think it's true in sport as well, just as true. And it's easier to describe it in terms of you'll have a bunch of athletes who train ferociously hard, and yet there'll be one or two who somehow, when the competition arrives, soar above the others. I mean, Usain Bolt is the classic. He doesn't Mm. train. He is naturally talented. And I came across an expression, which I thought is a great one, some Italian philosopher in the 16th century called it sprezzatura you heard that expression no and it means the combination everyone puts in the hard work but some people just have that ability to let go of the emotion emotional side and somehow have a freedom of expression think Usain Bolt doing his gestures and even as they come to the starting line you know who's going to win and I think that is a a sort of emotional mentality thing that some a lot of athletes are very happy training like crazy don't feel quite as happy when you have to do that little bit extra and expose yourself, if you like, which is what that second yeah. one wasn't doing. It's mm.
2: the exposure, isn't it? Yeah. Michael mentioned being, you know, being essentially quite a shy person. It's like when I have to present my work, you know, at design conferences, I kind of speak in front of a couple of thousand people. But as soon as you get on stage and the kind of spotlight's on you and you're in a situation where you have no means of escape... Um, you have to kind of deliver a kind of performance. So when you're on the stage speaking in front of people, you're kind of selling your work and and you're kind of selling yourself to people and it's kind of, you're in that situation, I think you kind of enjoy the whole process or you shy away from that kind of stuff. So I think it's kind of putting yourself in difficult situations and kind of finding out stuff about yourself.
3: That being able to go on stage and when it matters, rise to the occasion. It's sort of the same in an interview. It's the same if you're asking for a rise. It's the same in lots and lots of situations. So although it's not a pitch, it is an element of put all that rational worrying stuff to one side and just allow your instincts to take over for a while.
2: Yeah, I think it's that thing of not kind of overthinking too much yeah. as well, isn't it? And just yeah. kind of being in the moment and if stuff's going on, you, you know, you kind
1: of make reference to things and you, you try and communicate with, with the audience. Gentlemen, you've been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for your time. That is all we have time for today. All the books' titles we've talked about are out now. They are Little Wins, The Huge Power of Thinking Like a Toddler by Paul Lindley, Make It Now by Anthony Burrell, and... Unaccustomed As I Am, The Wedding Speech Made Easy and It's Not What You Say, It's The Way You Say It both by Michael Parker and you can find out more about the authors over at virgin.com We'd love to hear how this show has inspired you to live life better Get involved with the conversation on Twitter at Penguin Living UK using the hashtag live life A huge thank you once again to my guests Anthony Burrell Thank you. And Michael Parker. Thank you. And join us again in two weeks' time as we continue our quest to improve our lives. I'm Dominic Frisby. Until then, cheerio.